from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a renaissance woman and a master of tarot. From instructional to documentary and poetry to prose, she spans the literary gamut and the mystery of the tarot. She's joining me today to talk about her new novel, The Mouth is a Coven. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Liz Worth. Liz, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I was really impressed with not only how well your story, The Mouth is a Coven, was done, but also how well the gothic atmosphere you create permeates the mind of the reader. And that, along with the psychological underpinnings of the narrative, make the book really unique and enjoyable. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a must-read for anybody listening. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm glad those things come across as well. It's not always easy to, uh, I think, depict subcultures, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are a lot of music references and things in there, but sometimes it's harder to write about those things than it seems. Yeah. The storyline that involves the club kids is very familiar to me. When I was growing up in the 90s, we used to go to a uh, all-ages club called Numbers that actually still exists. I went to a uh, concert there a few years ago, and the bathroom situation you talk about, the dark booths in the back, I have experience with all of that, and I assume you do as well. So can you tell me about the clubs you went to and some of the profound experiences you had, as well as some lessons learned, possibly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had some similar experiences. I was also a teenager in the 90s and was really interested in goth and punk subculture. And there was a lot of actually crossover between the two of those at the time, at least with some of the people that I was hanging out with. Mm-hmm. And there were some clubs that were all ages. And there were also certain parties that were all ages. So they weren't necessarily happening all the time, but they would just kind of spring up every once in a while. And one was called Freak Show. And (laughs) it would go really, really late into the early hours. And I, I always had a curfew, so I couldn't stay until, you know, the break of dawn. But a lot of my friends would go to that. And and it was just a whole mishmash of different people, right? It wasn't just one type of look or, you know, one type of music or one type of uniform, so to speak. People would just come from all different types of scenes and communities for that type of party. 
And that was always really interesting to me because it felt very like anything goes. And there was something unflappable about that that I liked. I liked the openness of it. And I think that experiences like that, I don't know if they happen that much anymore because <laughs> I, I don't know if there are a lot of all ages venues around. I grew up in Toronto in Canada, and mm. I know there's been a big loss of all ages events over the last 15 or 20 years or so. But I think that, you know, having the opportunity just for different people to mix together and different age ranges to mix together was very influential for me uh, because it gave me experiences that took me outside of what I would have experienced if I was just, you know, just doing the high school thing all the time, I think. Right. Mm. Uh, yeah. You just you encounter different people's stories and perspectives and it helps you grow up a little bit, but it also broadens your mind in ways that I think are really important. Yeah. So are you a Gen Xer like me? You know, I'm just kind of borderline. I was born in 82. So oh, okay. yeah, so I always wanted to be a Gen Xer. And when I was a teenager, I was disappointed that I wasn't. <laughs> what is- <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of, I, for a while, we were Generation Y. Mm-hmm. And then people started calling us millennials. But I think I'm one of those people that never really seemed to fit into that category. I'm like, I feel a little too old to be a millennial, but I'm too young to be a Gen Xer. So I don't know, but I always really identified with Gen X. Yeah. It differs depending on where you look up, but it seems like more often than not, the cutoff is 1980, which is the year I was born. But (laughs) the way I look at it is I was a latchkey kid. Both of my parents worked. I was on my own for long periods of time. It eventually got me to the point in my adult life that I'm just rabidly self-sufficient. I don't want to ask anybody for help. I'm kind of a loner. And what was the other thing? Oh, yeah. Parents divorce. That's like (laughs) that's one of the uh, staples, I think. So I definitely consider myself Gen X, even though I'm right there on the border. I think my brother was born in 81. So I always point out that he's a millennial. But uh, with regard to your book, the vampire matter has a very specific backstory with regard to how he exists and how he maintains his existence. He's even got the aspect of a trickster god like the Norse god Loki. So was matter based on any particular god from antiquity? And if so, who? Oh, that's a good question. No, you know, sometimes, you know, characters that I have just seem to come out of nowhere for me. I think that he comes from certain influences that I've had. You know, I'm very influenced by the occult and I'm interested in pagan gods and ancient deities. So I think he comes from those influences, but he didn't come from a specific place. I had his name before I knew anything else about him. And there was something about the name Matter that I thought was really interesting, especially for for a being that needs to be summoned, right? Because he has to be summoned like a spirit. Mm -hmm. And so giving him this very material, tangible name felt very contradictory. So yeah, I think that you're right. There is a a trickster element there, but, you know, he revealed himself to me. So I don't know where he came from. Otherwise, maybe he does come from some other place that's been lost or something, Mm -hmm. but uh, that's part of his mystique, right? Is that he lives on in, in legend. A lot of the genesis for this book came to me through 
my own fascination in people who are very interested in being vampires and also people who sometimes think they're vampires. And uh, <laughs> to go to your earlier question about, you know, experiences growing up in different scenes and clubs and just kind of hanging out with a lot of different types of people and spending time on the fringes, right? You know, I used to sometimes meet people who thought they were vampires. And mm -hmm. in the 90s, at least in the goth scene, that wasn't that unusual. I don't really know what it's like now because I think that scene has changed quite a bit from, you know, when I was a teenager hanging out at some of those clubs. And here, you know, for us, a lot of those places don't exist anymore. But people used to not really think too much about bloodletting and slashing their arm and letting someone drink from their cuts. And yeah, and I did meet people who were very convincing when they talked about being true vampires. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I necessarily believed them, but I believed that they believed what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And and I think that there have been some interesting people over the years who have sometimes taken those ideas a little bit too far, right? And mm. really start to believe they were vampires to the point where they're doing very extreme things, right? With those ideas that, you know, one of the biggest examples of that would be Rod Farrell and the vampire clan murders that happened in Florida in the 90s. And for people who aren't I'm familiar I'm embarrassed with to say I am not familiar with those. I'm going to have to oh, look that up. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I, I heard about this because it was on America's Most Wanted and I was watching America's Most Wanted with my mom one night. <laughs> Again, I think this was around 96 or so, 97. Okay. And these teenagers were accused of murdering one of their parents. Uh -huh. There was a group of friends and a couple of their parents died uh, because they had this big plan to run away and escape to New Orleans. And the leader of their little group was someone named Rod Farrell, who had convinced all of these other teenagers that he was a vampire and that he had a vampire coven in New Orleans. Hmm. And so they were all going to go there and meet his coven and become vampires with him. And he had a whole story that he was hundreds of years old and, and really pulled them into his world. And, you know, that's an extreme example of what happens, I think, when we're caught up in uh, in a fantasy, right? And mm -hmm. caught up in this idea that we want to become something other than what we are so badly that we'll do anything to get there. And, you know, and again, I've met people like that and not people who were going to that level of violence to fulfill an idea of what they wanted to be, but they were going far enough as to convince other people around them that they're supernatural creatures. And so that's where the idea for matter really started to take shape because in the mouth of the coven, he is a spirit, right? He is this type of almost a demonic being. And I started to play around with the idea of, you know, what happens if you're trying to summon something that's very dark and dangerous and powerful and it shows up for you and how far will you go to really do that? So that's where the basis of the storyline started to come from. You know, this may sound funny, but in a manner of speaking, I knew a man that was a vampire that turned me and many other people. Now, hold on. Don't, don't freak out yet. So this guy was a dental hygienist and he made custom made fangs ah, mm -hmm. and anybody that he made fangs for, he would say that he turned you basically. And these things were amazing. If he didn't know you, like weren't friends or anything like that, he would make you go to a dentist and get a mold made because technically the way he did it was illegal. But 
the way he did it, if he knew you, is he would paint porcelain on your canines or whatever these teeth are called and then paint a palette behind. Mm -hmm. And then he would put this some sort of catalyst, just kind of paint it on with his fingers and you could feel the porcelain hardening on your mouth and then he'd pop it out and he'd file it down into fangs and they looked so realistic. Did you have anybody oh, like that wow. on the, uh, your uh, club scene? Uh, there were a couple of people, not that I knew personally, but there were people who were around that scene who had dental work done like that. Yeah. But to me, it always struck me as that those people did it for aesthetic purposes. Oddly enough, you know, one of the people who was most convincing to me about being a vampire was someone who wasn't even looking the part. He looked so normal. Yeah, he was really, he was probably about 20 years old at the time. His name was Matthew. He told me at the time that he was homeless, but that he, he was just living with a bunch of different people, basically, right? So he wasn't mm. sleeping on the street homeless, but he was just sort of couch surfing and all of this and very much got a free spirit kind of person. But I would run into him downtown at a place where I would sometimes go and have coffee. And he would tell me that he was a vampire, but it didn't seem like he was putting it on. And because he just wore, you know, blue jeans and plaid shirts and just looked, you, you know, very, he looked like anybody else, right? Is um, uh, so average looking. It was one of those things where I was like, well, you know, if you're hanging at a goth club and someone had the fangs in and mm -hmm. <laughs> the eyeliner and, you know, the whole look, and they were telling you that they're a vampire, you'd almost think that, again, they're kind of just a little bit of an exhibitionist or something. But because this guy wasn't trying to draw attention to himself, it always made me wonder, like, what's really going on with this person? It's the quiet ones <laughs> you got to worry about. Exactly. Yes. The ones that you don't suspect to come out and tell you something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that guy really is the undead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned just not wanting to be who you are, wanting to be someone else. In Aldea's case, it's probably a little different, but Blue and Julie, was that their main motivation? They don't like their own identity. They just want to be something else than what they are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for their characters, you know, and their motivation to become vampires. Again, I was pulling from certain ideas that I'd heard often when I heard people talk about why they wanted to be vampires. And also when I would think about why would I want to be a vampire? If I had the opportunity, what would I get out of it? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that vampires are appealing to us because they give us the opportunity to escape a lot of things that are unpleasant. Right. You know, That's it's an opportunity point. to stay young forever it's an opportunity mm -hmm. to stay up all night, don't have to get up for your nine to five the next day, get to drop out of society, but you're beautiful, right? you, yeah. you know, it appeals to, I think, our vanity. Our society is extremely vain, mm -hmm. very much obsessed with youth. Yeah. And also obsessed with the power that vampires offer, but it's a quiet power, I think, that vampires offer, right? There's a lot of, there are a lot of vampires that are very seductive very sexual. People tend to be attracted to them. They're magnetic. People want to be around vampires. It's one of the monsters that people would like to relate to the most, I think, and would probably be least likely to run away from in a bar. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 
Whereas if you had zombies walk into a bar or something, you know, it'd be, it'd be a different story, right? So I think in terms of horror and folklore and legend, vampires offer us a lot, mm-hmm. right? Because they give us something that we might aspire to be in our own dark, convoluted ways. <laughs> and so when I was thinking about Blue and Julie, yeah, again, really thinking of, well, what drives people to want to be vampires? If someone is going to seek out a vampire, if someone's going to summon a demon who's going to show up as a vampire and potentially change them into vampires, why would they want that, right? Mm-hmm. And and these people, you know, those characters are really caught up in this world where they're part of, again, you know, subcultures where vampires are seen as cool, mm-hmm. right? And youth and immortality and staying up all night and being part of something mysterious and something that's already a little bit outside of society, right? Subcultures are often outside of society. It's why they tend to attract a lot of outsiders. You know, then it makes a lot of sense for characters like that to be motivated to go all the way and try to find a vampire and become a vampire themselves. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought of it in that context. It gets us out of a lot of unpleasant aspects. Young forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're usually superhumanly strong, right? Mm-hmm. So superhuman strength. Can't they sometimes read minds as well? Like you can't lie to them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that that's one. Yeah. You, you got know, me thinking now. Now yeah. I'm trying to think like, what all... This sounds like a good deal. I want to be a vampire now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, right now as you're talking, I keep hearing Lestat in interview with the vampire in the film, mm. right? When he's changing Louis and he's saying, you know, you will never get old and you will never die. Right? Those are two things people want. Yeah. You know, no one wants to get old. No one likes the idea of dying, right? It's scary for most of us. And so those two things alone are really appealing. Yeah. Yeah, those two kind of sell it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm aware of your interest and expertise in tarot, but Mm -hmm. what other areas of the occult do you study that gave you the fodder to create such a rich, dark, gothic horror story? Mm -hmm. You know, I've always been involved in the occult in some way. When I was a kid, my mom was really interested in psychics and getting readings and things like that. So it was always just there. She Mm. didn't do these things herself, but she would have psychics come to the house and they would read at her parties and things. And when I was 10, she bought me a palm reading, you know, these types of things. Mm. Again, they were just normal in my house. So I was always interested in the esoteric and I was never discouraged from exploring it. So mm. I was, you know, I was allowed to have a Ouija board when I was a kid and my friends would nice. come over and we'd play with it in the basement. <laughs> and I've always had a hand in that world. So for me, you know, when I was growing up, I was into divination, but also I was very interested in witchcraft. In the 90s, Wicca was very popular. Uh, mm. The movie The Craft, came out in 1996 and I saw that in the theaters. So those things as well were really helpful for driving that interest because even The Craft Alone as a film really blew up accessibility to Wicca and other types of witchcraft. You know, I grew up in the suburbs Mm. in the 90s. The internet wasn't really a thing yet. You know, people had email, but (laughs) um, there was no, you know, there's no Google or YouTube or anything like there is now, right? So At the time, it was very hard to find anything out about tarot or 
find an occult store. There's no occult store in the suburbs where I grew up, right? I had to go to the mall. But when the craft became popular, all of a sudden, the new age section at the bookstore at the mall got a little bit bigger, right? Because people were looking for things like that. So yeah, I was always trying to acquire information as best as I could at the time, again, given that it wasn't always easy to find information on those subjects and also having limited resources as a teenager, right? Didn't always have the money to Mm. seek these things out. But I always stayed in that space in some capacity. And I was also really interested in zines. And it was through zine culture that I started to find out about other types of occultism that you couldn't get at the mall. So finding out about things like the Temple of Psychic Youth, Mm. people like Genesis Peorage, who, yeah, right? Mm. So who founded Throbbing Gristle and was, you know, an incredible musical pioneer, but also pioneered this whole youth subculture that grew out of their own occult studies and interests. And so... Genesis Peorge has always been a huge influence on me and how I view the world and move through the world as a creative person and also as a tarot reader. And so again, it's kind of a long answer, but a lot of these influences have just come from different places in that way. And again, just being open to what I've been able to find and then following the threads that inspire me. Yeah. Yeah. I had Michael William West on the show a couple, maybe it was the last episode. Mm -hmm. um, And he wrote a book called Sex Magicians, and it was, you know, small biographies of different magicians that practice sex magic. And I had never heard of Genesis Peorage before. And that just blew my mind. The melding of the two people into one. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Genesis Peorage decided to merge, right? merge Mm -hmm. identities and merge appearance and more right merge spiritually with their partner and it's so subversive and that's why i love it yeah right (laughs) because it's really the ultimate the ultimate performance art but Uh also i don't think that it was just for art i think it was also genuine and authentic and a desire to follow curiosity and see what just transcend reality in a way yeah yeah Mm -hmm. So with regard to your book, I mean, obviously it's a work of fiction, but is the reader meant to take all elements of the story at face value or is there some deep underlying existential subtext? I mean, I think I think there are certain messages in the book, right? A lot of people who've read it, you know, get a a be careful what you wish for message. That wasn't necessarily my intention. My intention more was to examine or explore what happens when people take a fantasy a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. But be careful what you wish for is also good. You know, I mean, if people get that, that's also cool, right? So there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that because readers have to have their own experiences with a book as well. But, you know, another thing that I hope it does is to stir people's imagination about magic itself and the occult itself. And if people perhaps start to think about exploring some of those things on their own, or maybe if it inspires them to take their own spiritual or occult practice in maybe another direction, maybe look at an urban landscape as a place to have more magical experiences, I think that that would be a great thing to take away from the book as well. Because in a lot of spiritual practices, especially in things like 
Wicca and other forms of paganism, there's a lot of push to connect to nature. And mm. there's nothing wrong with that, right? Nature's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, we live on the planet Earth, right? So we're all yeah. here in nature in our own ways. But I think that cities themselves have a lot of magic that they can yeah. offer. And, yeah. and there's a lot of energy that gets built up in cities. A lot of ghosts collect in cities. Mm-hmm. I think probably new types of spirits are born in cities because, you know, we're all focusing our collective consciousness on these urban landscapes and the things that we're building in them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, the monuments we name, the buildings we name, all of these things can become their own, their own type of magic. And so in The Mouth is a Coven, I wrote about a fictional city, Starling City. But I'd like to think that Starling City, which is a very haunted place, can be found in any urban setting, that you could have your own Starling City right around the corner if you wanted to. Yeah, that is a very salient point, you know, with not just Wicca, a lot of Eastern religion, Eastern spiritual practices, there is, you know, this attempt to become one with nature or to rediscover your natural roots. But cities are monuments to architecture and architecture comes from geometry. And we all know about sacred geometry and the magic of angles. I have a book called Infernal Geometry that is really interesting. The rituals are so complex. I haven't even thought about (laughs) attempting one, but uh, it's really interesting to read. And I've never been to New York before, but, you know, I live in uh, Texas, so obviously we don't have basements here. But anytime, especially when it comes to the comedy clubs, I see comedy clubs like the Laugh Factory or the Comedy Store, where you actually go downstairs to get into these places I don't know. There's just something about it that's like you're leaving reality. You're already surrounded by this massive architecture that kind of puts you in this weird frame of reference. And then you go further down underground into this magical place where everybody's getting drunk and somebody's on stage making you laugh. All of these things intended to change the way you feel and change your perspective and Yeah, I completely get what you're saying. It's been severely neglected to find magic in the urban landscape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point you talk about, how you can also build in different cities. I haven't thought about that before, but that is also really interesting because you're right, it would give you different access to different types of experiences and places and mm-hmm. and places do all have their own energy right you know there are sometimes places that are very liminal right such as you know where we went cross a threshold so a border for example mm-hmm. you know the border between one town to another the border between countries right we can just easily cross a border but you're really going into a whole other place Right, mm. literally and figuratively, even yeah. though it's, it's on the same <laughs> land, but all of a sudden mm. there are different rules and different culture and different expectations sometimes, mm. right? But yeah. I never thought about that some places have basements and some places don't. And also that some places you can't build that high either. So there are some parts mm-hmm. in the world and on the continent where you can be really high up in the sky in a building and then others where there are limits on that. And that also changes the energy of the space. Yeah, the elevation in Texas, 
back in my younger years, I used to skydive and Texas is actually a great place to skydive because you can go to 15,000 feet. If you go to a place like Chicago at a higher elevation, you can only go to 10 because you won't be able to breathe or you'll get so lightheaded. You'll, you know, you probably won't make the right decision and end up plowing into somebody or not pulling your chute when you're supposed to. So there's elevation, topography, all kinds of things that basically can kind of change the way you perceive your surroundings. That's so interesting as well. Yeah, I, I do think that so much of the way we think and move through the world comes from the places where we grow up and the places where we live. And, yeah. you know, you could spend your whole life in different cities, but you would learn something new from each one and each one would shape you a little bit. I think that we're always thinking that we have control over the land and we have control over our lives. But I actually think it's the other way around a lot of the time where we're very influenced by our environments. Mm -hmm. Barometric pressure from the full moon. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I'm not talking about werewolves. I'm talking about the inducement of uh, labor in pregnant women and things like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So so interesting. um, Well, you have two books of poetry. One's entitled Amphetamine Heart and the other, The Truth is Told Better This Way, Mm -hmm. which I haven't read, but from the descriptions seem like romantic reflections on the self-destructive excess of party culture. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was curious to know, the mouth is a coven. Is that the natural evolution of those books of poetry in the Gothic prose? And if so, are there any plans for a continuation of the story? Um, that's an interesting question. And by the way, the name, the truth is told better this way. That's a solid name. Uh, <laughs> I just want to let you know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I write, you know, I think anything that any writer writes always goes through their own filter, right? So Hmm. it's always personal in some way, even if you're writing about, I don't know, appliances or something, right? It's always going to (laughs) be through your, you know, the language you choose, the way you see it, what you believe is important to say, right? Hmm. With those books of poetry, you know, they're personal in that they both came from autobiographical places to a large extent, of course, there's always poetic license in that. And I think there are always other snippets of dreams and fantasies and imagination that come through as well. But they do come from very personal places. And I think, yeah, there is some influence there around party culture to a certain extent, because I spent a lot of time partying, right? <laughs> Especially when I was younger. And I think a lot of us do, at least in the, again, the communities that I've spent time in. Mm-hmm. And I did find that a lot of those spaces could be self-destructive, right? If you stay too long, things can go really sideways. And that can go, you know, I mean that by saying, you know, if you stay too long at one party, things can go sideways. But if you stay in those spaces too long and really let the years drag on, sometimes things can also get weird, Mm -hmm. right? And over time, you know, I started to see that some things were getting weird for some people that I knew. And sometimes there were times I felt like things were getting weird for me. And so I've always been very aware of kind of where's the sweet spot, right? (laughs) At what point, you know, have we stayed too long in something? At what point do we need to be aware that it's time to change? 
At what point is something no longer fun anymore? Right. All those questions are always things that I, I think about. Mm -hmm. The never ending pursuit of moderation. I just don't know yeah. what that is. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I, you know, I, for me, I always feel like I'm part observer, part participant. And maybe that's also being a writer is that you're always mm -hmm. noticing things and almost analyzing your own reactions you know and experiences right and thinking what does this mean and what is this about and why am i doing this right now the mouth of the coven is personal in a way because some of the scenes and the atmosphere that it pulls from again came from at least my personal experiences or my influences and the things that i like right i like vampires i like the occult mm -hmm. i like the idea of casting spells I like haunted places. I like cities and urban decay. So yeah, all of those things also came from a very personal place, even though it's a purely fictional story. And I think probably with that book, you know, all of the characters are truly fictional, mm -hmm. right? Whereas with poetry, yeah, there are often autobiographical elements in there, where sometimes there might be, you know, fragments or, or figments of memory and nostalgia and characters from the past right that come out characters from my past i should say yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you've written a work of fiction prior called post apoc mm -hmm. am i pronouncing that correctly that's right yeah okay how does that novel compare with the mouth as a coven in style and subject matter I think, you know, in terms of style, both books are quite poetic in how they're written. Again, you know, being a poet, it tends to come through in the prose that I write as well, where I'm very interested in language. And that's one of the reasons why I like to write is I think that language is a really interesting thing to play with mm -hmm. and experiment with. Post-Apoc is very experimental, I would say, less accessible than The Mouth is a Coven. I used to be, I still am, but when I wrote Post-Apoc, I was a little bit younger and very, very interested in writing something that was as weird as possible. I was really influenced by William S. Burroughs at the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's also a magician, right? Did and, you ever use the cut-up technique? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, sweet. I did, yeah. And there are some cut-ups in post-apoc as well. And I was really interested in being as weird as possible and writing something experimental. But that book also is extremely personal because I had gone through a period of time when I was in college where I was very obsessed with the idea of the end of the world. And there were a couple summers that I was working at a big box bookstore. And those two summers, there was a lot of smog in the city and it's very humid. And in the mornings throughout the summer, there were often smog warnings and they would tell people, you know, if you have asthma, if you have health issues, try to go out early in the morning or late at night and then stay home because the air quality is so poor, you might have trouble breathing. Hmm. And I thought, wow, it's really dire, right? <laughs> so, you know, so you know, what, a, what, like, what a message <laughs> to wake up to, right? Yeah. And then I'd go to work at this bookstore and you know, all day people are just kind of driving in and out, getting Starbucks because there's a Starbucks coffee shop in the store and just, you know, cars everywhere. It's in the suburbs, right? So cars everywhere and people are just getting Starbucks and coffee and the air conditioning's pumping. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> no one cares about the smog warning. I'm like, if this continues, <laughs> like we're really screwed. Like, <laughs> you know, this planet is really going to be in for a hard time. And so I started to almost become obsessed with this idea, you know, watching this unfold and, you know, being in my early 20s at the time and feeling like completely helpless to 
stop mm. anything bad from happening and realizing, I think, my powerlessness in a situation like that. So anyway, I started to think a lot about the end of the world and what it would be like and what would happen when we got to a point where no one could save you anymore. Mm. And and obviously, you know, it's a really paranoid thing to think about. But a few years later, I ended up channeling that paranoia into post-apoc. And really, it's... Uh, very heightened, I think, look into my my mindset at the time. It's pretty dark. People either love it or hate it because <laughs> they just think it's so dreadful and bleak and a little bit gross, even though I wrote gross things in what I think is a very poetic way. But the character for that book actually came to me as well. I was sitting under a tree in a park one day and she just sort of started coming to me, right, through, you know, through various thoughts. And so... It was through her voice that I wrote this story. But yeah, I mean, I would say again, you know, to compare that to The Mouth is a Coven, The Mouth is a Coven is still bleak. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> really one to write happy stories yet. But but I think that if you want something really intense and something that might make you uncomfortable when you read it, then post apoc is probably going to be a great book for you. But if you don't like to be uncomfortable, then I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> you know you talk about paranoia i don't know if you've ever seen that movie strange days but uh, oh, there's yeah. a, oh yeah. so you remember you remember milo when uh juliette lewis is telling him he's being paranoid and i swear the best line of that movie paranoia is merely reality on a finer scale <laughs> <laughs> it's like yes yeah. oh that's awesome yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, as far as your instructional tarot books, going beyond the little white book and the power of tarot, mm -hmm. what is the reader getting that's different between each book? And by the way, again, badass book name, Beyond the Little White Book. Everybody everybody that's ever bought a tarot deck has fished that little booklet out and laid a card down. Okay, that's the magus. Let me turn these tiny little pages and find out what the magus means. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So going beyond the little white book really aims to help you put the cards into context. One of the things that I find is often missing when we try to read tarot and learn tarot is understanding the context of a card, because the context is actually really important when you are performing some kind of divination, especially with tarot, right? Tarot can mean anything and it can mean absolutely nothing. You know, it's a set of cards with a you know, very random set of images. They can feel random when you're pulling cards and looking at them and wondering, what do I make of this, right? Mm -hmm. So understanding how to put things into context is a really important part of a reader's job, even if you're just reading for yourself, because that's ultimately what you're trying to do. What does a card mean if I'm asking about my love life? What does a card mean if I'm asking about my job? The answer is going to be different both times, right? Which is why sometimes the little white book isn't always helpful because it gives you, yeah, a few keywords, but it doesn't really tell you how to interpret beyond that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what you get with going beyond the little white book as you start to understand how to put the cards into different contexts. Obviously, you know, there are an endless amount of questions and iterations that we can look at things, but that book at least gives you a look at some of the common topics that we explore in tarot, right? Work, relationships, spirituality, focus, that kind of thing. So it allows you to, yeah, to, I think go a little bit deeper with understanding your cards and performing a reading. Mm -hmm. The power of tarot is 
less focused on card meanings. I don't talk about necessarily what every card means in that book. Instead, I talk about the importance of developing your own belief system when it comes to tarot. I help readers understand you know, what do they believe when it comes to destiny, fate, free will? Those things also underpin the way you'll approach a reading, the type of answers you'll provide, the answers you'll provide yourself or someone else. If you're reading for a friend or a client, they talk about also the importance of things like discernment, right? How do we use good judgment when we're performing divination? It's really easy to get it in your own head. It's really easy to go off on strange tangents. We have to stay grounded in what we're doing when we're performing divination. Otherwise, the information isn't very helpful, right? Or won't be very helpful. So I talk about, again, a lot of, you know, framing your own approach to things, developing your own philosophy, really understanding the tool that you're working with rather than seeing your tarot deck as a deck of cards that you just pick up and pull at random, right? It's not at random. You have to be very intentional if you want to use it well, and so the power of tarot helps people do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, you have a, I guess you would call it documentary book, Treat Me Like Dirt, An Oral History of Punk in Toronto and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of a documentary of the punk scene in Toronto between the years of 1977 through 1981 and includes never before published photographs. So I was curious to know, well, first, could you tell me a little bit about the book? But I'm really interested in the research. Like, what do you have to do to get a hold of never before published photos? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, so the photos were easy, actually. The interviews were the hard part. Cool. <laughs> we're happy to provide photos. Um, <laughs> and some of the photos came from my original publisher for the book, too. So oh, okay, he had a lot of photos. But I think in general... Canada is not great at documenting its artists. And it's a funny culture here. You know, we often talk about the same successful artists over and over and over again in Canada. And so there are a lot of other artists who are also established and really accomplished, but they don't get as much airtime mm. because uh, we tend to focus on the same few names, which is one unfortunate thing that we do. And then the other is that if Canadian gets famous somewhere else, then they're really celebrated in Canada. So we're not really good at upholding our artists or recognizing them. There are a lot of underdocumented scenes and histories and communities in Canada. So really having previously unpublished photographs or even interviews with artists here is probably not that uncommon, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, that was my first book. And when I was in high school, two of my favorite bands were The Clash and The Damned. And I loved first wave punk. I loved reading also about the history of first wave punk. At the time, I was more interested in UK bands, but I became more interested eventually in New York bands as well in LA. And the more I read about the histories of those bands, the more I realized how incredible that whole movement was because it wasn't just about music. You know, punk really changed a lot of things that we see now in popular culture. And it also was, I think, in terms of that first wave of punk was really interesting because it brought together not just musicians, but photographers, writers, 
clothing designers, right? It was a space where people were expressing themselves through all kinds of artistic mediums. And I really thought that that was interesting. That's always been interesting to me. People who often do more than one thing tend to be my favorite people, right? Like Genesis Peorage. Genesis Peorage did music, but also did a lot of writing, did a lot of occult work. Right. So mm. like that, people like Andy Warhol as well, who did commercial art and then painted and then made weird but pioneering underground films, also treaded a little bit into music in a more kind of offhanded way. Right. I mm. love that because, again, you know, they're not limited by just one thing. Right. They're just letting their creativity go wherever. I saw that same spirit in punk. And so. Just through, you know, music I was listening to and things that I was exploring, I started to learn that there was a scene that had happened in Toronto and I couldn't find anything out about it. I really wanted to read a book about the history of Canadian punk. And I especially wanted to know what happened in the city that I was living in and growing up in. And there was no information that I could find. And I would actually go to bookstores all the time in my early 20s and look in the music section because I was just like, there has to be a book. Like it was almost like I was expecting it to appear out of nowhere. I was like, there has to be a book on this somewhere. And I went to journalism school when I was 21. I graduated when I was 24. And all throughout journalism school, I was obsessed with this idea of learning more about the history of Toronto punk. And towards the end of my college years, as I was getting close to graduating, I started to think like, well, maybe I could just do that. I'm going to be done school soon. I just, you know, spent three years learning how to be a journalist. So if I really want to be a journalist, then I could just go ahead and start interviewing these people myself. And so when I graduated college, that was what I did. You know, the summer I got out of college, I just started working on that. And I just really wanted to find out what had happened. And so that was my goal of that. In your opinion, are there any like local or indie bands that come close to the energy of the first wave punk bands from what you know about them? Well, I mean, there was a lot happening. There was so much happening here. And it wasn't just in Toronto. It was also in Hamilton, which is a city just outside of Toronto, which is where I live now, and also in London, Ontario. So this whole southern Ontario area had a lot of music happening. And those three cities were connected as well. And so, yeah, I mean, there are bands that still play. There's a band called the Forgotten Rebels, and uh, they're still active. They just played here a few nights ago. There's a band called Teenage Head that was also from Hamilton, and uh, they're probably one of the most successful bands that came out of that time. And people still talk about them and still play their music. There are other bands that are more obscure, but very notorious and have a you know big reputation, right? Like a band called The Vile Tones. And The Ugly is another one. And, you know, those bands are a little bit heavier, a little bit more extreme. But the thing with the, you know, with that history here is that each band had its own style Mm -hmm. and its own sound. And I think that that's also something that you find when you look at first wave punk bands from the UK and from New York and from LA, right? Is that they all had their own thing going on. It wasn't uniform. It wasn't derivative. And that's why I think that era for that type of music is so special is because everybody was really free to let their creativity lead the way. You talk about 
artists whose creativity kind of branches out into a lot of different areas, some of them, you know, to the extreme. <laughs> Were you ever a fan of or at least familiar with Gigi Allen? Oh, I mean, I'm familiar with. I, I don't know. I yeah. think. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would necessarily be a fan just because I. I, <laughs> I it makes me sound uptight, but I'm a little bit grossed out by certain Gigi Allen things. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> you know? like public defecation and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I'm just curious what you thought of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's one of those things where it's so. Yeah, so extreme and so subversive. I have an appreciation for artists like that because they have an idea and they just go for it, mm. right? And it takes, a, I don't know if it's always courage with everybody. I can't always assume the inner workings of why people do what they do. Yeah. But there are also so many people in this world who have ideas and never act on them, mm. right? And they're not as extreme or as, <laughs> as, as weird as I don't know. Uh, He may have just been pure nihilism. Who knows? It's true. It's true. Um, But I do think sometimes it's not always a bad thing for an artist to make people uncomfortable or Mm. at least to get, you know, to kind of wake you up a little bit. Right. I think D.G. Allen definitely had the capacity to do that, at least. I liked watching the documentary on him, but I would never want to be in the same building as him. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. He would chase people down, <laughs> flinging stuff at them. Yeah, yeah that's, that doesn't sound like a good time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where I'd have to draw the line, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am both confused, but definitely intrigued by the description of your book, No Work Finished Here, Rewriting Andy Warhol. Tell me about this Mm-hmm. This uh, interesting work. Yeah. So, and this is such a conceptual project. There's another thing that I had thought about for a long time, and then I eventually acted on it. But Andy Warhol had put together a book called A, and it was titled as a novel, but it's really just, you know, 450 pages of raw transcripts that he had recorded over the period of several days and he would just bring his tape recorder and let the people around him talk mm-hmm. right and record all these conversations and he had originally intended to turn these transcripts into some kind of novel right and have something maybe a little bit more linear happening with it but when the transcripts were typed up he just decided to leave it as it was and So this was published as still, again, as a novel, even though it's not really. (laughs) And it's a very, very difficult read, not only because there are a lot of different voices on those pages with no, you know, no real direction. Right. And again, you know, some of these people were up all night and there was a lot of speed being taken at Andy Warhol's factory at the time. So, you know, imagine hanging out with people who have been up all night, very hyped up, amped up. What are you going to talk about, right? Uh, the conversations are not, you know, not always easy to connect with in that book. They don't always make a lot of sense. But the other thing that makes the book very difficult to read is that they published those transcripts as is. So they were typed up on typewriters by different transcriptionists as well. And so so they didn't fix any typos, right? And of course, you can have typos trying to transcribe something. I don't know if people are listening have ever transcribed anything, but it kind of sucks. Now there's mm-hmm. software you can get to do it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, you would just do it yourself. And yeah, it takes a lot of time and care to do it properly. So 
there are a lot of typos in the book. It's really messy. There's no story, right? There's no point to, again, any of the conversations that are happening. But when I read that book, because yeah, I'm a big fan of Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. And I read that book and there's something every once in a while that's very beautiful within it. And sometimes there are certain turns of phrases that are very poetic or very striking and sometimes revealing and personal as well. And so when I read it, I was like, well, there's something so interesting here. I wonder what would have happened if they had edited it and what it would have become. And so I eventually decided that I would edit it and rewrite it. And how I did that was I decided that I would turn each page into a poem, but I would only use words from that specific page. So I wasn't allowed to insert my own words. I didn't insert my own language. If there was a word that I wanted to use that wasn't on that page, then I wouldn't use it. So that was my constraint in writing it. And then, so that's how I rewrote a novel and I turned it into a book of poems instead. So it's 400, I can't remember the page count now, but it's 450 or so pages of poems. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And I did two a day. Yeah. I did two a day and it took me about a year or so to do it. Maybe a little bit under. It's a very interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it's so specific, right? Um, <laughs> but it was very satisfying to do it. And it's my homage to Andy, who, again, I think he was a really inspiring person. I know people kind of love him or hate him too, but he's someone who faced a lot of adversity. You know, he was sued a lot, right? And people often disliked him for different reasons. And people are still suspicious of him, you know, so many years after his death. And even though his art lives on and continues to be sought after. But he faced a lot of adversity. You know, he was shot. He almost died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, came from a working class immigrant family. Right. He's, uh, I think he's a really inspiring person. He accomplished a lot. Someone else who had ideas and followed them. Mm-hmm. Right. And did things that no one else was doing at the time. Yeah. I remember seeing that depiction of him getting shot. I forget which season of American Horror Story it was. I didn't know that was a real thing until I did some research. And I was like, oh, yeah, wow, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, he was clinically dead, I think, for about six minutes, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was really looking forward to talking with you about is tarot, specifically. Uh Mm Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, what is it about the tarot that interested you more than other forms of divination, like runes? And uh, I think it's pronounced, is it the I Ching? Is that how it's pronounced? Mm-hmm. I Ching, yeah. I Ching. Yeah. <laughs> Uncultured yeah. swine I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I don't know, actually. I've thought about this before because I've studied other types of divination. I'm trained in astrology and I used to write an astrology column and and read people's charts as well. And astrology is amazing and I use it all the time still, but I'm not actively practicing astrology right now in my professional space. I've studied runes and uh, I think runes are really interesting. It's another thing I've been interested in since I was a kid. But there's always something about tarot that brings me back and something about card reading in general that has always been really my first love. When I was 13, I spent a summer learning how to read playing cards, just regular playing cards, because I had time on my hands. And my mom had bought me a book. It was called The Little Book of Fortune Telling. And there was a whole 
chapter in there about how to read playing cards. And I was like, oh, I think I could do this. And so that's how I spent that summer. Yeah. And there's always been something really interesting to me about turning over cards and reading them as information and finding some kind of meaning there. And I think, yeah, you know, you can do that with a lot of different types of divination, but I find cards to be consistently accurate. And I think that's also another reason why I like it a lot is that I find it's a very reliable tool if you know how to use it, right? But there's also something about card reading that seems to find me. So for years now, I have found playing cards everywhere I go. I just find them randomly on the street all over. I found hundreds of them over the years. And I don't know why, right? But again, I always feel like it's like the cards are also reminding me that we have this thing <laughs> together, right? Mm-hmm. And with tarot, you know, I think there's so much to tarot as a practice. Its history is really interesting. It continues to evolve. It continues to have a lot of different ideas that people impose upon tarot and it inspires a lot of ideas as well. I think in terms of divination and what we're trying to find out about ourselves and our lives and the meaning of this universe, it's just, I don't know, there's just something about it. I think all of these things have their own energy and their own, I almost want to say consciousness, even though I don't know if that's the right word, but I think that sometimes these things seek you out as much as you seek them out. And I really feel like tarot has sought me out. So I can't always explain the relationship that I have with it, but you know, it's a deep one and tarot continues to inspire me in a lot of ways. There are always a lot of things I want to say about it and a lot of things I want to teach people about it. And reading and teaching tarot are I think, two of the greatest passions I have discovered so far in my life. Every time I do a reading or every time I teach a class, I feel just as excited as the first time I did those things. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So I am very detailed and it usually gets me in trouble, especially with uh, esoteric things. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like from your description of your book that it's kind of subjective, but I've got tarot broken down into three theories of operation. Mm-hmm. So okay. I, I want you to tell me which one is either correct or the most correct, or I'm a lot warmer with this one than I am with these other two, something like that. Okay. So I've got number one, the tarot cards are visual representations of elements of the psyche that activate the unconscious mind to help you make decisions. Number two, there is something akin to physics, like the observer effect, that causes the cards to fall correctly and give you guidance. Number three, there is something supernatural at work. Hmm. Uh, I want to say that there's something to all of these. You know, I'm a pretty practical person, uh, in spite of everything. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, I love of creativity, weirdos and weird art, uh, and, and all this time spent in magical places and thinking about magical things. I'm also very practical and like really normal and boring in a lot of ways too. And so, so I think tarot, I've thought about this a lot because tarot is one of those things that logically shouldn't work, right? Mm-hmm. You know, tarot started as a card game in the 1400s and over the centuries became used for divination, but it wasn't created for divination. It wasn't its original intention. 
So there's something about tarot that humans are drawn to. I think the same way that we're drawn to maybe reading the lines on the palm of a hand or the leaves in the bottom of a teacup, right? We find meaning in the patterns that we see there and cards fulfill that same thing. But it's odd because how could it be that you lay down a few cards and those cards tell you something about your life that's accurate and meaningful and relevant, right? Mm-hmm. So logically, it's a weird thing to do. And logically, you think this shouldn't work. But in doing it for so long and reading for thousands of people, it works so often. It's like, <laughs> how, why, right? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when I read tarot, I am reading the images and the images really come to life. There's so much, again, information in them. I see it as a visual language. It's a visual art form Mm -hmm. uh, that you can use to pull data, information, details, right? There's a lot that you can derive from the images in a tarot deck if you're really comfortable reading those cards as a language. But why do we get the cards we get when we do a reading, You know, how do we get the cards out of all 78 cards? Why do you get the three or five or however many you're pulling that you need at that time? I don't know. That's the weird part. Yeah, that's why I bring up physics. It's almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with Schrodinger's cat, but it would be like every possibility of drawing any particular card, all 78 possibilities exist simultaneously. And when you finish shuffling and reach and turn it over, it's like the collapse postulate comes into play and reality has to come to a conclusion. Uh And like once the card is laid down, it's like symbols and esoteric images. They're like the language of the unconscious mind, like they're helping you see something that consciously you normally wouldn't see when it comes to whatever this question, either you or your customer is asking. I don't know. I'm just speculating, but that's the first two options that were outside of just purely supernatural. That's where I kind of got those from. Cause like anything that, you know, most people would be comfortable like, Oh, well, it's just something that happens. Like, no, I need to know how it works. Mm -hmm, God damn it. Yeah. 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 I know. It's one of those things where, You know, I've thought about these questions too. I think these are good questions to think about, right? You know, whether we fully believe in something or partially believe, or we're not really sure where we sit with any of it. I think these are always good questions to ask because they're interesting, Mm -hmm. right? And there's nothing wrong with not knowing the answer. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with asking the question. Life on its own is pretty weird, right? We live on Mm -hmm. a planet in space. That's weird enough. I mean, for me, at least, I think that I always think that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just floating <laughs> out here, you know? Um, it's spinning. We're upside yeah, down. <laughs> it's, it's just, there's so much going on. I find, and life itself is so strange sometimes, right? Like the things that we experience, things that happen, there are just a lot of odd components to our reality, I think, in general, right? So it's like, why wouldn't we read cards on top of it? It's not the weirdest <laughs> thing you could do with your life, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, is there a tarot deck you prefer? Because I know there's quite a few. Oh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, when I'm teaching tarot, I teach on the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, which is the modern classic tarot deck. And it's one of the most popular decks in the world. But when I read for 
clients, I usually use a deck called the Charmin Caselli or the Cosmic Tarot. And the Cosmic Tarot is from the 80s. The Charmin Caselli is a little bit newer, came out about the last 15 years or so. And that deck is pretty gentle. The imagery is really gentle, which sometimes I find helpful for people because they're often nervous when they get readings. And so sometimes I just like to use something that, you know, it doesn't... What does the death card look like? I mean, it's still a death card. It's still in there. And it's it's, the, it's still the, you know, the rider on the horse. But sometimes I find that that's a nice, easy deck to read with, that it's not too striking. Because, yeah, I've had some people who are really, like, so nervous that they've started to cry, even though I'm not a scary person. But it just can't, you know, sometimes you just don't know, especially when it's, a, you know, someone new and it's a new experience for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you use a traditional tarot spread or did you develop your own or? I mean, I've developed my own over time, but these days my main way of reading is just to start with a question and put down three cards and go from there. So I just let the question drive everything and the images and I just read from there. I don't use positions as much. I do like tarot spreads. I think that they can be really useful, but I find that for the types of clients that I tend to have, they bring a lot of questions So it's just easier for me to not be locked into a specific tarot spread. And then I can just answer their questions and we can just really turn it into a conversation and go whichever direction we need to. It's more of a free form kind of. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, again, very much about relying on the visual of tarot and uh, letting the cards do most of the talking, basically. Yeah. Okay. What is the most bizarre tarot reading you've ever done, either yourself or for a client? Oh, I mean, so to go back to your question, like what, what's driving it, right? What is this? Uh So one time I was teaching a private class to someone, I had a one-on-one student and she wanted to ask a question. We were doing some practice readings together. So it was a question she wanted to ask and she shuffled the deck and she pulled out her cards, but then she realized that some of the other cards that we had been looking at earlier were not shuffled into her deck. She had left them out. Mm. And so she asked me if she should start again because she wasn't using a full deck when she had pulled her cards. And I said, yeah, why don't you shuffle them back in and then we'll just start over because it was just for practice anyway, even though her question was legitimate. It was I can't remember what the nature of the question was, but it was something that was going on in her life. So she shuffled everything back in, recast the reading. And even though she shuffled, you know, messed everything around, fanned the cards out, pulled them from random places, she ended up pulling the same three cards she had pulled originally anyway. So it didn't even matter. Wow. I know. <laughs> but when you're asking, you know, like, what it, like, why do we get the cards we get? I don't know. But mm. in that case, that was a really interesting example of it's like, what is that, right? Like, why why are these the cards that she's drawn to pulling, even though she can't see what they are? And she pulls the same ones twice in a row for the same question. So the answer is the same as before, right? I don't know. But that, you know, when things like that happen, I'm like, there's something here. I can't explain what it is, but I like it. It's fun when stuff like that happens. And it definitely keeps the work interesting, for sure. That happened to me one time. I didn't have cards missing i just did a spread and i didn't like where the cards were going so i was like well i'll just do it again and maybe i'll get the answer that i want and the same <laughs> the same cards dropped ah, like okay i guess i'm yeah. not uh I'm getting out of this one <laughs> no yeah you can't yeah you can't ignore that right yeah, i know mm-hmm. i know it's so yeah. this is why i think tarot is such an interesting form of divination 
because you can have things like that happen. And it's endlessly fascinating. I've been looking at tarot cards for years and it's just one of those things that doesn't get boring because I think the tarot always gives you something interesting to look at and to think about, right? And I think that thinking is just really, it's really important, right? It's how we lead ourselves to new questions. Yeah. Well, tell me about your, I guess the proper term would be personal training, your online courses, events, workshops, and you even do business coaching for people that want to become professional tarot readers themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On top of one-on-one readings, I do a lot of training for people who are interested in learning tarot or or building their tarot practice. So I offer support at all levels from beginners who just want to understand how to read tarot to people who are more intermediate and maybe have some understanding of tarot, but they're ready to build their skills a little bit more, or they're still figuring out how to really synthesize the information that they have. And then I also have trainings for people who are a little bit further down the path and want to focus more on some of their soft skills in their readings, right? How do you also address specific questions, really feel effective in helping people answer some common tarot topics, right? Such as around work and relationships. Those tend to be the two main areas people ask about. So I have trainings around those types of things. And then, yeah, if people, you know, need some extra help as well in just establishing a professional tarot practice, then I offer support there as well. Because that's, you know, that's one area that can be particularly tricky, right? It's not always easy to to run a tarot business, right? It's like running any other business. And it's one thing to have the skills to read cards for someone, but it's another sometimes to figure out how do I build a platform? How do I find clients? How do I establish myself in an industry and actually be able to create some kind of living out of this if that's a goal that someone has. So yeah, I, I offer training around that as well. So yeah, really all levels and okay. what people, you know, just depending on where people want to go and how far they want to go with it. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the life of Liz Worth like outside of writing and tarot? Uh, you know, I don't think my life is that exciting, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, I have a dog and a husband and all the usual stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I'm like a pretty normal person. I think a lot of the time, you know, I like to go for walks with my dog and I read a lot. And yeah, that's it really. But I, I kind of like that too. I don't want, yeah. you know, don't need mm-hmm. excitement is good, but it has to be the right kind of excitement, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I engaged in a lot of craziness in my younger years. I don't want to do that anymore. My idea of exciting is podcasting and I don't know, seeing what they've got out there in the way of film and literature that really pushes the envelope. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. I talk about this movie quite a bit, but I decided that my newest boilerplate question that I'm going to add and ask every guest is, what do you think about the movie Martyrs? Oh, I haven't seen it. How are you with really brutal violence? <laughs> oh my gosh. Is it like, have you seen High Tension? Yes. It's okay, actually, it... it's actually that same vein, French oh. extremism. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I like High Tension. I like this that movie. movie this movie kind of dwarfs High Tension a little bit. Okay. But but do you like psychological horror? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay. 
it's funny that we're having this conversation because a uh, woman that I interviewed yesterday, she hadn't seen it either. So I recommended it to her and she actually posted a story on Instagram saying, you know, she had two hours away from the kids. So she's watching the movie and the last messages she sent me were like, I am so traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> but she hadn't finished the movie yet. Okay, so okay. I, I, I've got to find out what she finally thought. Because oh the, okay. the movie's pretty brutal. And mm -hmm. towards the end, it's just all sewn up perfectly. So mm -hmm. if you like psychological horror and you can withstand quite a bit of violence, then I would highly recommend reading it. Okay. All right. Or not reading it, watching it. Okay. okay. <laughs> Don't read it. That would uh, no, no. actually, you know what? You have to read it because it's French. There's subtitles. Ah, so I okay. recommend reading and watching it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your current goal in life? Oh my gosh, my current goal in life. Um, you know, I really. My current goal in life overall is I want to feel really connected to some new stream of inspiration. That's what I'm looking for right now. I'm working on a couple of newer projects, but I'm still waiting to kind of be taken over by them. And so that's what I want. Like, I want to feel like I'm driven by something I'm creating to the point where it's my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Like, mm -hmm. I want to be all in. So I'm hoping that... If I get a little bit further deep into these ideas, that that's where I'll be. Mm -hmm. Well, Liz, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. Same to you. This was a lot of fun. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um, you know, I, I think the, the best place to always find me and the best thing to plug is the Internet. <laughs> so for people who are interested in my tarot work, they can find me at lizworth.com. And then if they're interested in learning about more of my books or where to find them, then they can go to my author website, which is lizworthauthor.com. And then I'm on Instagram at lizworthtarot. So those are all the places that I'm usually hanging out online. And that's where people can find anything they need to know about me. All right. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Liz, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.